Today in the garage, we have the creative Nader Hassan. Nader practices criminal regulatory and constitutional law at the trial and appellate levels, defending clients accused of criminal misconduct in a variety of cases, including white-collar crime, violent offenses, drug offenses, and professional misconduct. He has an expertise in digital privacy law and search and seizure law, and has appeared in many of the leading cases in this area. Today, we discuss Nader's practice of pretrial motions to ensure they run smoothly. Whether you're driving your Lexus 350, picking up your fender, or bringing an application to expand the availability of conditional sentences, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. I, I'm really pleased that you're joining us, and uh, we're going to impose upon you to share your knowledge about pretrial motions, the really sometimes the, the heart of any individual case. Absolutely. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So when it comes to uh, being retained by a client, uh, whether it's uh, one area of uh, criminal law or even in a regulatory uh, setting uh, where you're defending uh, an individual or corporation, how important are pretrial motions? They're, they're immensely important. Um, sometimes they are the heart of the case. Sometimes they are the be-all and end-all. I mean, just to take a couple of very, very simple examples, um, you know, if it's an, an identification case, an ID case, uh, where you might otherwise have um, a strong defense on reasonable doubt, but you, know, you have the little problem that your, your client has made an inculpatory statement at the station, However, if he did so before being given his, his Section 10B charter rights, you may have a good pretrial motion to exclude that inculpatory statement. And if you're successful in that pretrial motion, that changes the entire complexion uh, of the trial. Uh, going into a trial with uh, a damaging inculpatory confession versus going into a trial without one, as you know, Paul, it's, it's night and day difference. It absolutely is. Um, I, I, I can only imagine those that are of the view that the charter is dead or, or that you don't have remedies available, um, they need to know about that there's not only 24-2, but there's 24-1 out there uh, for uh, individuals uh, a, a, a to be protected in our democracy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there, there's been a lot of critique of various approaches to Section 24-2. That's, of course, the the, uh, the provision in the Charter that allows judges to exclude evidence that would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. It's gone through various permutations over the years in terms of how judges uh, apply that law. Um, it's not exactly a defense-friendly test. However, if care is taken uh, with respect to building the record, um, it, you know, it, it is still a very usable remedy such that, you know, lawyers ought to know it like the, the back of their hand. But you make a great point. Section 24.1 also affords remedies uh, less frequently to exclude evidence. However, Section 24.1 is, is, uh, is capable of giving you an even more drastic, or your client, an even more drastic remedy, that being the, the stay of proceedings, which you can get through a Section 11B speedy trial application uh, or through a, a Section 7 a abuse of process application, of course. It's interesting where you uh, indicate uh, it's gone, 24-2 has gone through some permutations. I don't want to give away my age, but I, I'm stuck in the Burlingham uh, type of, uh, of, of logic and, and the exclusion. 
it makes sense to me, but I have to obviously adapt with times and argue on the record. And the record is such an important thing, and I'm glad you bring it up. So you get a file in. How do you build a record? From the ground up. I mean, I, I think um, sometimes as, as uh, junior lawyers, we get, we get mired in the law because that's what's taught in law school. I mean, you read cases, uh, oftentimes those annotated cases you read in, in the textbooks in, in law school, they, they remove the facts altogether and you just read the, 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 the legal ratio. Um, and when you get into practice, you, you realize just how important building the factual record is and how facts drive outcomes in, in cases. Obviously, you need to know the law. That's basic. Um, but you use the law to inform yourself about how to build that factual record. And, and that begins, that begins at, at day one. Um, when you when you meet with your client and you learn a little bit about the case, obviously you don't have a, a full-throated interview with your client um, the first time you meet them until you have disclosure. But then once you get disclosure um, and you start to learn a little bit more about the case, I mean that that's when the record building starts in earnest. And and like like good criminal lawyers like yourself, Paul, what I like to do is I like to 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 think about what I want to be able to say during closing arguments at trial and then work backward from there. And, you know, that, that starts on day one when you're reviewing disclosure for the first time. What do I want to be able to tell a jury or a trial judge at the end of the day? Uh, and as I am putting you know, that strategy together and putting that defense together, what I, what I want to ask myself also is, hey, is there a piece of evidence that's really, really irksome uh, because it, it makes uh, my, my client um, look potentially guilty? Uh, and then we'll ask the question, well, you know, um, <laughs> can we do something about that? Is this admissible evidence? Uh, and you work backward from there and you, you, you figure out whether or not you do have a, a means to uh, challenge that evidence. Um, and, and so in the first instance, what you're going to want to do is make disclosure requests tailored to learning as much as possible about that evidence um, and the process um, in which that evidence was obtained. And, and, I, and I, I emphasize uh, that point. It can't be emphasized enough. And I know we're talking in abstract here. Um, but if we're looking at, at, for example, Section 8 of the Charter, unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, obviously, you got to start with, with, the, uh, with the warrants and the ITOs. But I think what, what some people sometimes overlook when they're doing Section 8 work is it's, it's not just about the issuance of the warrant. It's also about the execution of the warrant and the manner of execution and the manner of the search. And so, you know, even if the warrant checks out, um, you know, even if you don't see any obvious flaws, facial or subfacial flaws in the warrant, you got to look at the manner of execution. And that's not something you can do if you don't have all the officer's notes, if you don't have all the officer's communications with each other and other agencies, potentially, um, and if you don't have all the, the, the video that has been assembled, if you don't have the notes of the, the computer forensic examiner that looked at the devices after the seizure, that's not uh, an argument that you're going to be able to explore. So for me, um, building the record really starts 
uh, and doesn't just start, it continues for a long time with understanding the disclosure at the earliest possible time and digging as deep as you can get uh, to learn as much as the investigation as possible. Because, you know, oftentimes um, evidence that looks impermeable uh, on its face after you dig a little deeper and scratch the surface, you'll, you'll realize there are potential potential issues in the investigation that's that are uh, worth exploring. During the life of a criminal file, um, you may be able to identify this, like you say, you, you foresee the path, the long run path, and are building it from day one, reviewing with your client, getting the further disclosure. But as the procedure goes along in the criminal courts, um, when do you crystallize uh, whether there will be an application, and when that happens, if you're still at the judicial pretrial phase or the pretrial phase, do you strategically share it with the Crown at that point? Uh, do you do? Uh, uh, do you wait sometimes until it's fully developed? Uh, what do you do to ensure that your client's rights are protected? Yeah, that that you raise a really important question. I mean, and and I think the the advice is not going to be one size fits all in a situation like this. Um, there have been instances where I have shared everything uh, with the Crown in terms of what our game plan is going to be with respect to pretrial applications. That is typically in the context where uh, I think it's a slam dunk, um, either on, on uh, uh, Section 8 grounds where not only is the Section 8 argument strong, but the 24-2 argument is strong. So in other words, there's got where there, there is perhaps some, some bad faith, if not bad faith negligence on the part of the investigating officers. And if it's an 11B application, you know, if it's, if we're not in a transitional case, it's clearly Jordan, it's clearly um, beyond 18 months or 30 months. And I know because I've had carriage of the matter from the beginning that each set date we've been kicking and screaming about how we're ready to go um, and it's looking like a case where the writing is on the wall um, I might share that with the crown especially because when it comes to an 11b record you don't really lose much by revealing it to the crown or or by sharing your app your draft application early on and in fact um, particularly in the post-pandemic period um, you know we're finding, I'm certainly finding that certain crowns are, are, are having their, their eyes and ears open, perhaps, where they weren't before with respect to meritorious cases, uh, both on the so-called merits and on, the, on, the, uh, on charter grounds, uh, listening with open ears and an open mind in terms of, you know, if, if defense has a good argument, maybe it's not something worth proceeding with. So in, in instances where you're not really losing a whole lot by opening the kimono, it's, it's worth exploring whether to, to uh, download some of that uh, pre-trial motion trial strategy onto the JPT judge or, or the Crown in the hope of, of convincing the Crown that they've got no reasonable prospect of conviction. Um, you know, if it's something where we still have to develop the factual record, um, you know, then it's a more tricky strategic decision. Um, if we are pre-prelim, and it's a case where there is going to be a prelim, um, 
I don't want to reveal to the crown what my potential section eight or or section ten b argument might be because uh, I want to do some discovery at the prelim to try to um, establish that record before you know, I reveal to the world uh, what the application is going to be. I mean, the prelim is a we think of the prelim oftentimes as a way to discover the Crown's case and to obtain concessions. It's also a great tool to lay the groundwork for a potential uh, pretrial application. And the reason why I asked that, and, and, I, and I threw that question at you, is because um, I know, you know, in this year we missed uh, the National Criminal Law Program because of the pandemic, and you are a distinguished speaker uh, to the audience of 600 plus people at each one of these events. But in the past, there's been the discussion, and it's happened to me, where I get this irky feeling that maybe the Crown Attorney has shared uh, the charter brief, uh, brief, I'm saying, with the police officer, or asked pointed enough questions to, to raise uh, some concern for the officer. And, and trust me, that hardly ever happens. The Crowns that I deal with all day long are amazing people. They're looking to run trials efficiently. They're trying to ensure that their ethical duties are done. It, this is like anything, you know, it, it, it's, it's, that, it's that one time where, where it, it just happens. Um, and so um, I, I, that's why I raised the question, because if you get that feeling, or if you find out during a prelim or during a pretrial motion, the officer's shared, been shared with information, what can you do as counsel? Yeah, so the first thing that, that I'd recommend is to try to preempt that as much as possible, um, even though I think they, that the Crowns probably shouldn't be doing uh, what you've just described, and, and I, I agree with you that I think most don't. Uh, when, when I uh, serve my uh, charter application materials, my pretrial motion materials, what I would, would typically do um, uh, is to include a cover letter to the Crown saying expressly, um, please don't share this with the officers involved. And what a great idea. Typically, typically they respond by saying, understood, I won't do so. When they don't respond to it, I follow up in an email. And in the email, um, I include a line at the end that says this correspondence may be relied upon in a further application. And so if that doesn't prompt a response, um, then during the course of examining the officer in question, um, uh, I will ask about conversations with the Crown. And that's, that's fair game. That's fair game. I mean, that's not legal advice. That's not privileged. Uh, a conversation between the Crown and the officer about my charter application or my client's charter application, that's not privileged. And that's fair game. Uh, and you can ask them uh, under oath. And, you know, they have to tell you the truth. And if the officer were to lie, then the Crown's got to stand up and say, you know, Your Honor, we have a problem. You know, my officer has lied. And uh, I think most crowns would do that because, you know, they care about their reputations more than, uh, you know, winning that particular case. Um, so I think that there's, there's things you can do to avoid that particular um, circumstance. What you can also do uh, if, you're, if you're 
getting the sense that you have a crown who is unwilling to agree not to show the materials to the to the officer, um, you can also request uh, disclosure of recent communications, notes of recent communications between the officer and the crown. It's interesting uh, because, uh, you know, I throw that question out there, like I said, but uh, when I go back to the purpose of a judicial pretrial or a pretrial is really to act in an appropriate way as defense counsel to lay out for the crown what our case could be, you know, or, or what our case is, or in front of a judge, what time we actually need. We, ha- we have our own reputation to protect as well. And so you, you don't want to move away from that. But there are times, like you say, where, you know, you still have to build a record. There's the preliminary inquiry or, or there's maybe uh, an alternative form, either uh, through uh, 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 us- using the ability to off-site and, and go in to uh, be able to do uh, civil uh, uh, um, discoveries or discoveries of an officer if there is agreement to save time. So you want to build that. But when you get to filing that application, we know to look at the rules. We know to ensure that certain things have to be included. Uh, so when you're building the record, uh, what are the things that you do include uh, in a formal application, aside from the application or the factum? Do you always do factums? Are there times where you won't do a factum? Uh, so, so that's a good question. Uh, let, let's, let, I'm, I'm going to start with that question first because uh, it's, it's something where reasonable minds might disagree uh, in terms of, of whether or not to do a factum for a, a pretrial application. My, my own preference uh, is to always do a factum, um, no matter how big or how small the case. Um, I think judges like having them. Um, you know, judges as erudite as they may be, uh, no one has every proposition of law at their fingertips. So just by the, just by dint of doing a factum, you are being helpful to the judge. Uh, and judges are human beings too. Uh, we tend to put them on pedestals, but they're human beings and, and they, they, they like it when their lives are made easier. Uh, and so doing a factum, I think, can, can, can help in that respect. Um, also, you know, having spoken with judges over the years and, you know, casual uh, conversations and, and, and having, having clerked a long, now a long time ago, one thing that judges have always conveyed when the issue comes up is that um, 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of the time, it varies, the percentage varies by judge, but they say in the vast majority of cases, we're persuaded by the written argument, and oral argument makes a difference in a slim minority of cases. You know, armed with that knowledge, it's almost incumbent upon us to, to make sure that our written materials are, are really top-notch in, in every single case. Now, having said that, the rules don't require a factum much of the time. Um, the Ontario Court of Justice criminal proceedings rules, they, they don't they don't require a factum. Um, it's unless the judge directs it. Very simple form. Very right. simple form, right? The, unless the judge directs it, you don't. You're not obligated to create and serve and file a factum in an OCJ proceeding. Even in superior court, the the rules are such that unless I mean you have to look at the rules for for um, that apply to your given pretrial application because. 
um, the reality is there's some very specific rules in the in the uh, as you know in the, in the superior court criminal proceedings rules and and for for a minority of applications there is a a factum required. Um, so, for example, where you're challenging the constitutionality of legislation, primary or secondary legislation, there there is a factum requirement. But for the vast majority of pretrial applications, even applications under Section 24.2 to exclude evidence, um, there is no obligation to serve and file a factum. So, armed with that knowledge, you know you don't have to do it. However, strategically, it can be useful. But the fact that it's not required as a matter of formalizing your application gives you a little bit of latitude on, on when you might seek to serve or file uh, that, uh, that factum. And this dovetails with the, the earlier issue we discussed, which is you know, giving too much away of your strategy and your case to the Crown uh, before it's opportune to do so. So if you are really worried about that issue, you might do a, a more slim down notice of application and record and hold back your factum a little bit longer. Um, my, my former mentor uh, and one of the great criminal lawyers of our, of our time, um, Clayton Ruby, he, he, even when the rules required the factum to be served ahead of time, sometimes he'd like to just walk the factum in and hand it up and, and give it to the crown at the same time as he was handing it up to the judge. I, he could sometimes get away with that kind of thing because he was, he was Clay Ruby. Uh, and, uh, you know, that maybe that's not, not the ideal thing to do. And you might, you might draw some uh, consternation from the judge and, and the, the crown will be up in arms. That said, if the factum according to the rules, is optional. You do have more latitude when you choose to serve and file it, and you can usually get away with, with waiting a little bit closer to the hearing date, uh, or at least closer to the date when you're examining the officers uh, before, before uh, uh, sharing your factum. And sometimes when that would happen, we call it a statement of law as opposed to a factum. Right. And, and, and yeah. everybody would be fine with it. But you know, going back many years, uh, there were times where uh, the the flavor of the uh, pretrial motions were um, it was an unreasonable search, and that was it. Yeah. And I believe, through my experience over time, um, that what you have just articulated is give a roadmap to the judge to find exactly what you're asking for, yeah. and it will help your advocacy tremendously. And and it took me many years to figure that out. And so I thank you for sharing that. Um, Any favorite applications that you've brought or anything that's been unusual? You know, truth is stranger than fiction. And and you go in and you're ready and you're prepared and then something happens. The reason it's a favorite application of mine, uh, and it doesn't come up in every case, but it's a favorite application of mine because I think it's one of those applications that can really turn the tide of a trial um, and the minds of a trier of fact. And that's the Edgar application. Um, that's, that's where your client in custody made an exculpatory statement. Now, how often does that happen? Not a ton of time, but it happens. It happens. And, and up until the Ontario Court of Appeal um, uh, issued its, its seminal decision in, in a case called Edgar, um, 
an exculpatory uh, statement made by the accused was not admissible because it was a prior consistent statement. Um, now, obviously, if he made an inculpatory statement and it was vo it was voluntary, the Crown could could get it into evidence if they could prove uh, beyond reasonable doubt that the statement was voluntary. But an exculpatory statement uh, would not be uh, admissible. Um, uh, and uh, after Edgar, uh, there is now, uh, uh, I wouldn't say the door is, is wide open, but there, there is a, a way to get exculpatory out-of-court statements before the, the trier of fact and law. And the reason I like those applications is because I, I often think that when the trier of fact hears the exculpatory statement at a time when the accused did not know the case to meet, did not know the disclosure, did not have the benefit um, of, of legal advice from, from a Paul Cooper or another seasoned criminal lawyer, um, Triers of fact give a lot of weight to, to that reality, you know, even though arguably uh, you, you shouldn't if the person testifies um, in a forthright, credible manner in court. That should be good enough under our laws. But, you know, judges and juries are human, too. And the fact that someone made an exculpatory statement uh, long before he knew what, what the right thing to say was, uh, I think goes a long way in the minds of, of many people. So for that reason, it's, it's one I, I, I like quite a bit. It, it's, it's interesting because I think people forget about simple things like that, or res just I. Um, and, and I know that uh, um, on a case, you know, they went to appeal of mine, and of course it only goes to appeal because I was not successful, um, but was returned uh, because of uh, good counsel at the, the Court of Appeal. Um, I had told the jury uh, about the testimony of my client, but my client didn't testify. It all came in through the statements we were able to get in. And uh, the, uh, the court in uh, some oral banter uh, indicated they should remind Mr. Cooper that that's not testimony. But it is the words of my client. <laughs> so whatever you can get out for your client, is, yeah. is, 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 it can only be helpful. And in, 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 in looking, and like you say, cases are built by facts, but it's that knowledge you have that you're sharing with us of the law that you know and and i don't carry that same knowledge but i listen and i learn and, and there's there's so many things that uh lawyers like you uh, uh, share the appellate lawyers and and those that do appellate law and also do uh, uh um uh, trials can share with us so that we learn to to rise to that challenge as well so i appreciate that um any other fun things that uh, have happened in court that uh, were unexpected that you can share with us fun i mean uh what's fun for us is rarely fun for the client so I'm, i i hesitate i hesitate to to even go there but, but let me, if i could just pick up on something sure. you mentioned earlier i mean you you mentioned you you had a uh, a, a, a case where where you know a res gestae exception hearsay exception mattered and ultimately in the outcome and I think sometimes as, as, as lawyers, we, when we're thinking about pretrial applications, we tend to get hung up on the sexy charter stuff, you know, Section 8 application, Section 10B application. Um, sometimes the most effective uh, application can be just a, a, a plain vanilla common law application to exclude evidence because, 
because it's unduly prejudicial and its prejudicial effect will outweigh its probative value, right? Even if something, even if evidence was collected in a manner that complies with every single charter right, you can still ask the judge to exclude it um, because it's unduly prejudicial. So for example, uh, and this, this is a total hypothetical, um, uh, you know, in a terrorism case, for example, you know, a terrorism case, if, if the accused's um, you know, laptop contained video of, of speeches from Osama bin Laden, now, arguably, it's somewhat relevant to the accused state of mind, so it might be relevant in some some way. Uh, but that's so inflammatory if that if those facts get in front of a jury or or a judge, if the judge is the trier of fact, that uh, we would be acting in good faith to say, you know, Your Honor, you should exclude that evidence. It's going to inflame the jury, uh, and you know, it's it's only of marginal relevance, but it's highly highly prejudicial. So. I mean, don't overlook the sleeper hits. The common law is, is, uh, is still uh, your friend, and knowing the rules of evidence, uh, uh, that's still very much uh, an asset, um, notwithstanding all of the, the, the charter remedies that are potentially available uh, alongside them. And, 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 you know, we're talking about uh, pretrial motions. If you foresee it, absolutely bring it. Um, and, and, and I believe the case is handy. Absolutely. It's yeah. a handy case to have, yeah. uh, you know, criminal lawyers, bad jokes. Uh, but <laughs> the uh, it's also during that trial because trials are dynamic. Yeah. Don't be afraid that when you find out, you know, you, you have some new disclosure and it's something that can be extremely prejudicial. Bring that application. Telegraph to the judge. Listen, we're going to have to stop tomorrow. There's an application I'm going to bring. I want to put something together in paper. Can I have the morning off? And, and be able to uh, uh, bring that forward and, and protect your client. Uh, I think some people uh, sometimes uh, are so into it uh, that they get worried about what exactly to do. And, and I've suffered from that like everybody we do. does. We all right? do. So uh, young lawyers um, starting out, um, I, I know I was terrified. I, I went to every so, so CPD I. event I, I could go to, spoke to every lawyer I could, uh, that would uh, spare me a moment to listen to. Um, what recommendations do you have for young lawyers? Because they are our future. They're the ones that I think are like in tune with what the law is, much yeah. better than I am. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it, young lawyers don't, don't lack for intelligence. I mean, I teach at U of T Law School and I'm blown away every single year at just how damn smart the students are. Yeah, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, right? And, and, and so uh, if you're a lawyer, you have the intellectual chops to do the job. The only thing you lack is experience. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, what we do is, is not rocket science. You can, you can figure it out if you're a reasonably intelligent person, and, and almost all lawyers are uh, who are practicing in, in, in this jurisdiction. It, it, what it takes is hard work, and doing it for the first time is, is always going to be daunting. Um, so, you know, you got to know the rules. There's no substitute for, for knowing the rules, and invest in an annotated uh, criminal proceedings rules. They're not, they're not expensive. Uh, the Martin's annotated version of the rules is, is very, very useful. Uh, and you got to know the law, but you probably know the law, having gone to law school and taken the relevant classes. Uh, and then it's just a matter of doing it. And don't hesitate to reach out to people 
who have done that application before. If it's your first time doing a Section 8 application, talk to someone who's done them all the time. I guarantee you they won't turn you down. I mean, criminal lawyers love sharing their knowledge uh, of the law and uh, trading war stories on how they've done it in the past. And, and so no one's going to turn you down. And, and you don't have to feel sheepish about it. It's not just a new lawyer thing. Lawyers have been practicing 20, 30 years bounce their ideas off their colleagues and they say hey look this is something i'm thinking of doing i know you brought one last week that went well you know tell me what you did happens all the time it's it's par for the course in fact it's it's professional negligence not to bounce your ideas off of your colleagues every now and then it's 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 something that happens all the time um i would be completely lost if i didn't have different uh, sources I could reach out to and, and bounce ideas off of. And, and I'm a sole practitioner, and, right. and I know that I'm available. Uh, if people want to call, I get calls from uh, individuals across c- the country who see I may have tried an application and was unsuccessful but wanted to know something. Or even on the listserv, uh, the Criminal Lawyers Association listserv, just finding out you know what a judge is like or what, a, what experience you've had in this type of uh, unique uh, right. new motion is so important. Last year at the uh, National Criminal Law Program, um, there was a great discussion uh, about bringing applications uh, because we've had a change in law. And for example, if we deal with uh, the areas of, uh, uh, of where there's prosecutions involving uh, allegations of sexual assault, disclosures change. The rules for disclosures change. And um, it's it, and and I and also we have a, a lot of new legislation yeah. in the last five years. Um, people have to challenge it. Um, can you share with us how important it is uh, to bring that challenge to law or to try to bring an application when there's an air of reality, even if you think you're going to get beat up? Yeah, I mean you make a, you make a great point. Um, the nice thing about practice in criminal law is because it triggers life, liberty, and security of the person. You know, you, you're, you, you are always potentially in the game if you want to bring a constitutional challenge. You know, my mantra is, if the law seems unfair, challenge the law, right? And I think that's, that's the working approach of, of most criminal lawyers in, in this country. And uh, sometimes, even if you're constitutional challenge to the law um, uh, isn't going to succeed, it may prompt the judge to apply the law itself in a more, in a, in a more fair way so as to avoid the interpretation of that law that will uh, trigger the constitutional infirmity, right? So, so I, I think, you know, you made reference to Section 276. I think, I think that's something we are seeing now in, in that, in the litigation around, uh, around that law. I mean, the, the other important thing about uh, bringing pretrial applications and bringing legal applications in a trial is that, as we all know, it's, it's to, to, to show innocence at trial or to show that the Crown hasn't met its, its obligation to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt, um, evaluating the facts, evaluating credibility uh, at trial, that's the domain of the trial judge. And, and judges at the Court of Appeal are very, very reluctant to interfere uh, in those kinds of decisions. However, on issues of law, 
um, the Court of Appeal is not deferential uh, when it comes to issues of law. And um, pretrial applications are oftentimes asking a, a, a trial judge to make legal rulings on the charter or on some other legal issue. So even if the pretrial application may seem like a subsidiary issue at trial, when that case goes upstairs to the Court of Appeal for review, that pretrial application issue might be the best hook for an appeal because uh, at the appellate level, it's, it's the issues of law that matter. So even if you've drawn a, dr a judge who you say, you know, he hasn't or she or he hasn't granted a Section 24-2 application in 10 years, if it's a good application, you still have to bring it because the Court of Appeal, uh, they will listen uh, with open ears and an open mind uh, to a meritorious charter application. And, I, and, and we know that the Court of Appeal can only work on a record. Exactly. And, and so you have to bring that challenge. You have to build that record. You have to ensure that your facts are there, that your law is there, that your factum's there, that your arguments sound. And then, and then you move forward with it. I, 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 one of my favorite applications to bring, uh, and hopefully one day I'll be successful, is in jury trials. I want jurors to be paid from day one on long trials. I want, I'm not trying to change the petite jury. I'm trying to ensure that the broad jury represents the community that my client is part of. And right. my client is not always a wealthy individual uh, in business. Right. Uh, and so that's one of my favorite ones to bring, and, and I hope others bring it. Are there any one, any favorite application that you like to bring or that you'd like to see the law change in an area? Yeah, so I, I, like, uh, I like bringing an application for what, I, what we call colloquially sometimes, like uh, uh, as the, um, referred to as the expanded parks challenge. Um, as you know, we've been... You know, bill, the, there was a recent bill passed in Parliament that eliminated peremptory challenges, um, much to the dismay of much of the criminal defense bar. But that's an issue that's going up the Supreme Court of Canada and hopefully will be resolved soon. Um, and hopefully before the juries go, jurors go down, or number of jurors go down to six, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be another issue as well, uh, worth challenging. So you know, what the Parks Challenge, as, as you know, it's, it's an application. Um, usually it's brought when the accused is, is, uh, is a member of a racialized or indigenous group or other visible minority um, to allow um, uh, the lawyers to ask the potential jurors uh, a question or two as to uh, that, that is aimed at uh, sussing out whether or not the jurors harbor prejudice that would um, uh, make them unfit to be jurors on that particular case. The problem with the standard Parks question, and I, it, it's, it, it irks me that it hasn't been fixed over the years, is that the Parks question basically amounts to asking jurors, hey, are you a racist? And if so, can you put that racism aside for the sake of this trial? And, you know, it, it would be a rare person who would put their hand up to that question. Um, and it also flies in the face of everything we know about, about unconscious bias and systemic discrimination. And so um, there have been some successful applications over the years to ask um, uh, 
multiple choice questions. Um, I've done it a few times, and then I wasn't the first one to, to think about this. Uh, there's a case out of Brampton called Douse. That was the first case in which it was, it was used, and it's been used you know, throughout the GTA in Ontario sporadically. Um, some crowns will consent to it. Some crowns will, will oppose it. Some trial judges like it. Some don't. And, and what, essentially what it is, is is you put to the jury, uh, the potential juror, the scenario that um, this is a trial that involves a, a black man and um, white victim, um, uh, which of the following, you know, with that knowledge in mind, do you think you'd be able to, to um, judge this case fairly? And it, it, it doesn't say, it's not a yes or no questionnaire. It gives jurors different gradations of, of comfort. So they can say, I wouldn't be able to. Uh, they can say, I would. Um, they can say, I'd feel somewhat comfortable. Um, and they can say, I don't know. Uh, so it gives them an out um, if they have any, any hesitation, but they're not really willing to put up their hands and say, I'm, a, I'm actually a racist. And those, those um, the answers they give can be revealing because uh, it's also the manner in which they answer the question that, that can be revealing. And in the past, even if the person wasn't deemed unfit by the rotating triers based on their responses, the answer to those questions really helps inform how you use your, your peremptory challenge. Um, so I, I've always felt that the, the alternative parks question was a really helpful tool to learn more about the juror, the potential juror, than, than we, we typically get to. It's, uh, it's, it's a great area to keep expanding in, especially with the change in the law. We may have to push the judges to explain why they're excluding yeah. or accepting a juror. Yeah. It just shows, I think, uh, myself and, and, and hopefully all of us in the, in the game here, being defense lawyers in a democracy, is that we have a role, and that role is to continue to challenge, and, and the way you do it is exactly the way you've been doing it and the way you've, you've explained with our audience how to do it. And so I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, it's been fantastic. It's been informative, and uh, I just want to thank you again. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been a, a fun conversation. I hope we can keep it going. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.